You can turn with me in your Bibles to Titus chapter 3. Last week we considered verse 1 of Titus 3, and today we will consider verse 2 of Titus chapter 3. We'll begin our reading at Titus chapter 3, verse 1, and we will read down to verse 7. But again, our, the focus of our attention will be on verse 2. Here again, God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God abides forever. Congregation, what kind of testimony do you have? What kind of testimony do you have? What do others say about you? I know you don't know that for sure, but if you were to guess, or if you were to hope, what do others say about you? What does a watching world, those who know of your life, think of you? Has anyone ever been brought any closer to the Lord through your witness, through your example, uh, as a result of your character? Children, I would ask you, what do your friends and classmates think of you? Do they think of you as an example to follow? Do they look up to you? in any way? Do you think that you have brought your friends any closer to the Lord? Or do you think that maybe the opposite has happened? That they have brought you down further away from the Lord? The Scriptures have much to say about the importance of our testimony before a watching world. For example, Jesus said in His Sermon on the Mount, to let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. That's really a profound statement. See your good works. The only way they can glorify the Father is if they themselves have been converted through the light that you have shown. And I think one of the most powerful and clearest passages in this regard is 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12 where we are urged to have our conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, in other words, they'll be convicted, they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, what does that mean, the day of visitation? That's the day when God Himself visits them in the power of the Holy Spirit and causes them to be born from above through your honorable testimony. And what an amazing thing it will be on that final day to see who is there in glory as a result of your example and testimony. Daniel 12, verse 3 says this, Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turned many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. 
Those who turned many to righteousness will shine even more brightly like the stars forever and ever. Therefore, congregation, be mindful of your testimony, of your character, of your example before a watching world. Because others watch you, others observe you far more than you or I think or realize. Your testimony has a tremendous impact on those around you. Well, as we look at Paul's letter to Titus once again this morning in chapter 3, we are reminded that this chapter, or at least the first part of the chapter, does focus on the godly testimony of the believer in the world and in society. You recall that chapter 1 focuses on the godliness of the leaders of the congregation, the eldership. Chapter 2 focuses on the godliness of the various members of the church individually and as in their family relations and within the church. And then chapter 3, the godliness of members in society. And in verse 1 of chapter 3, we saw last week how Paul began his discussion of this by addressing the character of Christians in their relationship to civil government. That is, in submitting to and obeying and honoring the civil authorities that God has placed over us. But here in verse 2, the apostle begins to transition to the godly conduct of believers before all, all those in society who are our neighbors. And we know that Paul's emphasis is on the character of the Christian, especially in sight of the world, because of the context of this verse. If you look at the passage before us, you will notice at the end of verse 2, Paul writes that we should show humility to all men. You see, he's more all-encompassing there. In the following verse, verse 3, the apostle then goes on to contrast the character of unbelievers in the world with the character of believers in the world, which is our verse for today. Verses 2 and, verses, and verse 3 are contrasted. Notice verse 3, for we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. And so he's contrasting the way that the world lives with the way the believer should live in the world in verse 2. In addition, at the end of verse 1, we see the apostle transitioning from our godly conduct in relation to civil government to our godly conduct in every area of life. Notice again verse 1. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, and remember that word patharcheo means to obey magistrates. It means to obey rulers and authorities. The word for ruler or authority is in that one Greek word, and that's why the King James Version actually translates it, obey magistrates. In our version, it just says obey, but I think it's better to realize what the word's talking about. It's talking about obeying civil authority. So remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey magistrates, and then he says to be ready for every good work. Now certainly we are to perform good works uh, in light of our duty as Christian citizens. But this exhortation is far more encompassing. It is good work of every kind, every good work. So we'll be looking at this transition to the good works of the believer. And he says that the believer is to be ready for every good work. That word ready means to be prepared for something or to be standing by. Uh, when a soldier is standing by, that means he is ready. Okay, He is ready uh, for action. He's not laying down in his bunker. He's not tying his shoes saying, I'll be ready in a few minutes. He's standing by. He is ready for action. When you children are playing sports, there are especially times when you are standing by. I've seen some of you boys playing uh, basketball. 
and the game is going on, and while you're sitting on the sidelines, the coach calls you over to himself because he is getting ready to put you into the court to play. And you are preparing yourself, and you are ready. That's the readiness of your mind. And Paul is saying, be ready for every good work. When, as a family, you are having people over for dinner at your house, and you have the food prepared and the table set, and you're watching out the window for them to pull up into your driveway, you are ready And in fact, you are ready for a good work. What a wonderful good work that is to serve in that way, to show hospitality, to have people into your home. That Greek word for being ready means to be ready with the necessary preparations being done. Now, there are other times when we are not so ready for good works, are we? Sometimes we are not very willing. Our attitude is not always right before the Lord. But I especially want you children to be cultivating in your mind now this important understanding of being ready for every good work. When your parents ask you to do something, to be ready to do it. When they ask you to uh, clean your room or when they ask you to help set the table or when they ask you to take out the trash, to be ready for that work. To not be, oh, I don't want to do that right now, or maybe later. But to say, yes, I'm willing, I'm ready to work. I'm ready and willing to do that. Uh, I've, some of the days when I teach at Redeemer Classical School, at the end of the day, some of the students will be asked if they can take down the flag at the end of the day that was put up earlier in the morning. And I see some of those students say, I'll be ready, I'm willing, I'll, I'll go. And if some other students are asked, you know, they don't really, they're not, they're kind of hesitant. But we want to be those who are ready, ready to do good works. And this idea of readiness is really tied very importantly to the idea of personal devotions, of our seeking the Lord daily. When we pray to the Lord and we, and we prepare our hearts before Him and we're in His Word and we're praying, God is preparing us for good works. He's helping to form our attitude, the attitude of our mind, you see. It's kind of like in the wintertime, especially early in the morning, you, you don't want to get in your car and just start driving off because it's so hard on your vehicle. And some vehicles, they, they just don't want to go in the morning. I've been in some vehicles, you're trying to drive it, and you haven't warmed it up, and it's not really wanting to go. You've got to go out there and turn your car on and give it five, ten minutes to warm up. Well, that's kind of like what our devotions are like. It prepares us, it gets us ready for good works. And when we think about the nature of good works, remember in a recent sermon we talked about the good works have to come from a heart of faith. They must be according to God's word. They must have a right motive and an end for the glory of God. We can see how important it is for us to prepare ourselves for good works through praying to the Lord and preparing our hearts to serve him. Now, as we work our way into verse 2, uh, the Apostle Paul elaborates a little bit more on what, to his mind, should be the focus of a godly testimony before a watching world. And what we find here is what, again, is so characteristic of this letter a list, another list of godly characteristics and virtues. Now, I know you may be thinking, and I'm sure you've noticed as we've gone through this letter, another list. I mean, this, this book has been just one list after another, hasn't it? The list of the qualifications of elders, the, the list of these false teachers in the church and what's, what they're about, the list of all the various members, the older men, the older women, the younger men, the younger women, the servants, list after list after list. But these lists are important. And this, we have here another list, but I would have you know that the words in this list are different than any of the words that have been used so far in this letter. We have to remember these are things that came into Paul's mind as he was being led and guided by the Holy Spirit. 
especially when taking into consideration the situation at Crete, but also uh, what God's people would read years later. And we need to keep in mind also that in this place, what Paul is dealing with here is the corporate testimony of the church. Of course, the individual is involved, the individual believer always is, but the church body as a whole, their testimony as well. And there could be little doubt that this is what the Holy Spirit is particularly concerned with at this point in the letter. The corporate testimony now as he comes to the testimony of the church before the world and in society, what their testimony looks like. The other day, uh, we had a bag of apples that we had gotten from the grocery store, and I think we'd had it for a couple days. And I thought they were good organic apples, but one apple in there was really rotten, and it just was grotesque looking, and of course you have to throw it away. And the rest of the apples seem to be okay, but immediately, once you see that one rotten apple, the rest of the apples are, are kind of brought into suspect. Are these okay? Are these good? You need to check them over carefully. And the same is true with the church. When you have one rotten member, it brings the whole church into suspect. And you wonder what the character of the church as a whole is like. It's like that bag of apples. And so let us be mindful of these things together as we seek to glorify God corporately. As a church family together, we should be conscious of this. Now, there are four specific virtues or characteristics that are set before us here in our passage. The first is given negatively. That is what we are not supposed to do. We are not supposed to speak evil of others. And then the other three are given positively. But notice that especially with the last three, peaceableness, gentleness, humility, the chief concern is with the attitude of the heart and how it expresses itself in the life. We see some parallels here, don't we, with the fruit of the Spirit given in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. These are not good works themselves per se, but rather characteristics that are to adorn the believer in the midst of their good works. And as we learned already from our discussion of good works, if the manner of our working and the motive of our working is not right, then they are not really good works before God. And that's why no uh, unbeliever can really perform them. But what we'll do with the remainder of our time is we'll take each of these characteristics one by one. So the first, which is perhaps the most important of all, and maybe that's why the apostle mentions it first after stating we are to be ready for every good work. We are not to speak evil of anyone. To speak evil of no one, as it says in the text. To speak evil of is one word in the Greek text, and it is actually the word blasphemeo, which is where we get our English word blaspheme from. We are to blaspheme no one, essentially, is what this verse, what our verse is saying here. Now, in our English language, we usually equate blasphemy with speaking profanely of the Lord and with having, as one commentator said, a defiant irreverence for God and the things of God. And the, indeed, this is the way we see this word used over and over again in the New Testament. But in the Greek language, this word is also used of speaking negatively or against people in general. In Mark chapter 3, verses 28 and 29, it says, Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they may utter. I mean, there's all kinds. Whatever blasphemies they may utter will be forgiven them. But he who blasphemes the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. Now, the word blasphemeo can also be translated as to slander, to malign, or simply as to, simply to speak e evil of, as it is in our text. 
But the word is a combination of two words. The one word, blocks, which means sluggish or slow, and the other word, femi, which means fame or reputation. So when you analyze the word closely, it's more literally to be slow or sluggish, to honor or respect or protect or esteem or speak well of anyone, whether that is our neighbor or God. To simply not be eager to speak well of someone, to some regard, in some degree, is to blaspheme them. That is the more general usage of the word. We can see how the word is used in Luke 23, 39, with reference to the one criminal who did not believe in Christ as he hung there next to him on the cross. But he was very frustrated with Jesus that he didn't save him. In Luke 23, 39, he says, it says this, Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. If you are the Christ, save yourself. He wasn't like actually dragging Jesus' name through the mud, but he was frustrated with Christ, you see. He was having a low view of Christ. And he, and he was saying, why aren't you saving yourself if you are the Christ and me? The English Standard Version translates that verse this way. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. The criminal was not honoring Christ, but being critical of him, and therefore he was blaspheming him. This word is also used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. In Daniel 3, verse 29, in Daniel 3, 29, it says this, Therefore I make a decree that any people, nation, or language which speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces and their houses shall be made an ash heap because there is no other God who can deliver like this. Okay. After King Nebuchadnezzar had thrown them into the fiery furnace, he says, don't anybody speak anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's the word from our text, blasphemeo. Now, let me qualify this by saying that I don't think it is the case that we can never say anything critical of other people or that we can never make judgments about other people and their character. Sometimes we are even called upon uh, to do this. For example, in a court of law, we may need to testify against someone. Uh, we also find Paul speaking negatively about people in his letters. He speaks negatively of Hymenaeus and Philetus. He speaks negatively of the, of the Cretans, doesn't he, in Titus chapter 1. The Apostle John has some harsh words to say about Demetrius in 3 John and verse 10. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, prating against us with malicious words. So he was going to speak against Demetrius in front of the congregation. Jesus spoke harshly of the Pharisees, not only to their face, but privately to the disciples, saying that they are blind leaders of the blind. But this is different than speaking evil of someone as we have it in our text. We are not to intentionally defame the character of another person or to desire to harm their reputation. We are not to say anything negatively about others in order to make them look bad. One commentator summarizes well what our attitude should be. He says this, It may be necessary... When we are called to state what we know of his character, to say things which are not at all in his favor, or things which he has done that were wrong. But we should never do this for the, uh, for the purpose of doing him injury, so as to find pleasure in it. And where it is necessary to make the statement, it should be done so as to do him no injustice. We should give no improper coloring 
We should exaggerate no circumstances. We should never attempt to express ourselves about his motives or charge him bad motives, for we do not know what his motives are. We should not make the bad traits of his character more prominent and then pass over all that is good. In a word, we should show that we would rather find him to be good, a good man, than a bad man in these things. And we have to be very careful with how we talk about one another in this congregation. And I'm talking about all of us here. Because it doesn't take much gossip or slander or evil speaking of others to destroy a congregation and to rip it apart. One of, the, uh, one of our seminary professors at RPTS, every year, the, the, the professors will have an opportunity to preach in chapel. We have chapel just about every day of the week. The, the professors will have an opportunity to preach every quarter, uh, you know, and then the students also preach throughout the school year. And this one professor who I had, he would always start off the year, every single year, his first sermon every year would be on speaking evil of others or gossip or slander. Because he talks about how he's seen it, even in other seminaries and, and educational institutions where he's worked at, rip people apart. He said he's seen how churches have been ripped apart because of how people speak about one another. And year after year, that's his first sermon. Let's not do that here, he says. I know, I know an example right now of one pastor in the ministry who is, is, uh, is going to be leaving a church because others have said uh, bad things about him that were not true. And there's a pastor that I know of who has been recently deposed for libel, that is, spreading false information about another person, a damaging person, damaging a person's character. And they have been deposed from office. This is serious stuff. And we have to be really careful, too, online, the kinds of things that we say about one another and to one another. Let's be especially careful to not speak negatively about those in our church family to those outside our church family that would bring discredit upon this congregation. We have to be very careful. Let's be an example before a watching world in this. People in the world talk negatively about people behind their back all the time. Let's conduct ourselves differently. Even when we talk to our spouses, we need to be careful about what we say about others. Think about how serious God takes this sin in Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19. You know, that familiar passage where it says, six things the Lord hates, yea, seven are an abomination to Him. And it's that seventh one that is such an abomination to the Lord that in His eyes are more heinous than all the things that have been mentioned previously. These six things the Lord hates, yes, seven are an abomination to Him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift and running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and here comes the seventh, and one who sows discord among brethren. It's an abomination to the Lord. Proverbs 17.9 says this, he who covers a transgression seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates friends. He who repeats a matter separates friends. The next characteristic that is mentioned is peaceableness. To speak evil of no one first and then to be peaceable. The word is amakos and it means to not be a fighter one who avoids quarreling, one who does not look for conflict, one who is not contentious, especially in the sphere of words, but it doesn't have to be uh, confined to just that. Although the Christian is called to peace, and there is much in Scripture about being peaceable, this word amakos is used only here and in one other place in Scripture, and that is in 1 Timothy 3, verse 3, with reference to the qualifications of an elder. He is to be one who is peaceable. 
It is quite likely that the Jewish false teachers on the island of Crete, of whom Paul speaks about in chapter 1, were very contentious and quarrelsome. And that is why the apostle urges the Cretan believers here to guard against this kind of behavior. But the believer is called to be a peacemaker, to strive for peace with all men to the greatest extent possible. In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Now, now, why in that particular instance is it the peacemakers are called the sons of God? Because in promoting peace, they are so much like God, their heavenly Father. Uh, our God is called a God of peace in Romans 16, verse 20. God has made peace with us through the blood of His Son. God was so set on bringing peace between him and his creation that he crushed his son in order to accomplish it. God said, there's a rift between me and my creation and I must restore it and I'll do whatever I can to bring that peace back. And so he sends his son and crushes him in order to bring, bring peace between us and God. And like our Heavenly Father, we are called in Psalm 34, 14 to seek peace and pursue it. In Romans 12, 18, it says, If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. The one who is peaceable is willing to relinquish their rights, their prerogatives for the sake of peace. They will defer to the, to the other person when there is a miscommunication or conflict. If there is a disagreement, the peaceable one is willing to say, you are probably right. I may be remembering that wrong. Now, that can be a really difficult thing to say at times, especially if we think we remember something correctly. And there is a place to stand our ground. We are called at times to stand for the truth and not budge one inch. And that does not always promote peace. We cannot forsake the truth for the sake of peace. But the peaceable person will avoid conflict and defer to the other person wherever, whenever possible. He loves to be at peace with others and greatly desires it and pursues it to the greatest extent possible. The one who is peaceable desires to be, at, uh, to be um, reconciled. He desires reconciliation at every turn and will go to great lengths to accomplish that peace. The one who is peaceable will allow love to cover a multitude of sins and will overlook sins that have been committed against them. Proverbs 19.11 says, It is the glory of a man to overlook a transgression. Now, that's not to say that we don't need to go to people at times, because we do. But the more that we can overlook, the better off we will be, and the more we will be able to promote peace. What would the world be like if everyone were so peaceable? It would be a world of peace. We find an excellent example of peaceableness in our father Abraham do you remember when there was strife between his herdsmen and then Lot's herdsmen? We are told in Genesis chapter 13, verse 8, when you know, they, they were too close together and the herdsmen were fighting with one another. You know? And, you know, the herdsmen of, of Lot were saying to the herdsmen of Abraham, Hey, we, we found this plot of land first, or this was good grass that we want our cows to eat at, and you're coming over in our place. And they were fighting with one another. Well, it says in... Genesis 13, 8 and following. So Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me, and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If you take to the left, I will go to the right. If you go to the right, then I will go to the left. And what a a humble posture that Abraham had towards Lot in order to pursue that peace. He didn't say, well, I'm the oldest, I'm your uncle, I'll choose this, you go there. No, he says, wherever you want to go, I'll go the other direction. He was seeking peace. 
So congregation, let us be a people who are committed to the paths of of peacefulness. May we be marked by it. May others say of us, you seem to be at such peace. Well, Hummus, a brockle, has a lot to say about peaceableness, but he said this about the believer who is at peace and is peaceful. Quote, While thus enjoying peace with God in their conscience, it is as if all that is in the world is at peace with them. They are in league with the stones of the field, and the beasts of the field are at peace with them. Job 5.23 They are thus disposed when they interact with people. Their heart goes after them, and their peaceable heart desires nothing but harmony, even when they are alone. A peacemaker living in the enjoyment of peace with God has a heart free from strife. He does not harbor thoughts of having been wronged by his neighbor, of envy, or of any discontentment. Rather, he is at peace within, calm, quiet, and satisfied. Doesn't that remind us of God, who is at perfect peace? And I especially want you children to be mindful of this and to pursue peace. When you talk, when you talk to other children and you begin to argue with them about something, you can stop arguing. You don't have to continue. You don't have to have the last word. You can walk away. Or you can say, you may be right and I may be wrong. When you're playing with one of your toys that you just got and another child wants to play with it, you can be peaceable and say, here, you can have a turn. Or here, you can have the first piece of cake. Or you can have the bigger cookie to pursue peace. These are hard things, aren't they, children? But let us pursue peace. Even at your young age, you can begin to pursue it. May we all be a people who, are, who pursue peace, who are marked by peace. And may that all that transpires among us and within our congregation be peaceful and may others see it and take notice of the peacefulness in our midst. The third characteristic that is mentioned is gentle, gentleness. Now this word has a very specific nuance to it. It may be that gentleness is not the best translation here. It is not the same word translated gentleness in Galatians 5.23. You know that list of the fruit of the Spirit that mentions gentleness. This is a different word. That word is provtes, and it is used much more frequently in the New Testament. This word is not used as often. It's, um, it's epicase. And it really refers to one, listen now, it refers to one who avoids holding too strictly to the letter of the law. And you see how some of these things just don't come out in our English translations. According to one Greek dictionary, it refers to one who has a sense of what is truly fair by relaxing overly strict standards in order to keep the spirit of the law. The Greek philosopher Aristotle, he commented on this word, and he says it refers to one who has the ability to consider not only the letter of the law, but also the mind and intention of the legislator. You see how significant this idea is? Especially when we think about interpreting the Constitution and other historic documents who considers not only the letter of the law, but the mind and the intention of the legislator. And thus, this word is often also translated as fair or reasonable or moderate. The same word is used in, in Philippians 4 and verse 5, where it says, Let your moderation be known to all men. That's the King James Version translation of it. In the English Standard Version, that same verse, Philippians 4, 5, says this, Let your reasonableness be known to all men. And if I were translating this verse, I would not have translated it as gentleness because it really doesn't get the point across. I think reasonableness or moderation is a lot closer. Okay, We could see how that moderation and reasonableness is necessary, especially when we interact with unbelievers in the world. 
And so this word really pertains to this idea of not being so strict about rules and regulations and what we commonly understand to be the letter of the law. Now, I don't think that this word in Scripture refers to the idea that God's uh, the, that the standard of God's law should in any way be relaxed. But I do think that where man's ideas are conveyed or are written down or are codified, there is a sense in which the spirit of the law needs to take precedence or at least over the letter of the law or at least be taken into consideration. And I think we all know how frustrating it can be when there are those who abuse the system, right? Who so strongly emphasize the letter of the law that they actually end up being unjust and unfair and sometimes ridiculous in the end result to which they are pursuing. I'm sure we've all heard stories about lawyers who find loopholes in the law. And, and get people off the hook because of some technicality. And there have been these kinds of situations even in the RP church with regard to our own constitution where there are those who have, quote-unquote, gotten off the hook because some procedural, you know, d- didn't go quite right. You know, the, the, the procedure was off. And this is a sad, this is a travesty when th- those kinds of things happen. But think about the scribes and the Pharisees in this regard. How intent they were on the letter of the law, right, being followed. To such an extent that they were blinded to true love and mercy and gentleness, you see. There's an excellent example of this that we read just a moment ago in Daniel chapter 6 with Darius and Daniel in the lion's den. And those men came to king, the king and said, you can't change the law of the Medes and the Persians. We, we have to hold to the letter of the law. Well, Darius did away with that real quick. And he threw them into the den of lions. He, he, for, he, he, he forewent that letter of the law. And what did Darius end up doing? What he should have done in the first place. But he was gentle. He showed gentleness. Because he didn't hold so strictly to the letter of the law which is a real problem. But you know, all of us, all of us need to take this to heart because we can be prone to be too strict in various ways in our lives. We often have our own set of laws, right? Often unwritten and our own way of doing things. And this is simply how it has to be done. And we're not willing to relax them. This has to be done at a certain time. and This has to be done in a certain way. And this is my schedule and I won't break from it. And some people like rules and regulations too much. Now, I'm not saying that rules are meant to be broken. And I'm not saying there aren't times where we need to have that structure and that schedule. And we need to hold to it at times. We have to determine for ourselves what's most important. There is a place for that. But I'm reminded of a family who went on a vacation... And one of the family members had this whole plan of the week, you know, planned out about what people were going to do. Okay, you provide a meal on this day and have clean, and you'll clean up afterwards, and then on this day and this day. And so there, this one person is kind of control everybody else on their vacation time. And finally, one of the other people said, you're ruining my vacation again because of your rules and your regulations. You're too strict. And isn't it true that people who are often too strict also have a hard time being gentle? Isn't that something that there's a word like this in our Bibles that helps us with this? I mean, this idea, congregation, sometimes God calls us to relax. And this word proves it. Let's be a people who are epicase. If you want to be able to minister to others, to serve others, to meet the needs of others, if you want to learn to put others before yourself, as we are told to do in Scripture, you must be epicase. And this really is the spirit of Presbyterianism, 
Pastors especially who are not flexible, who have to do it a certain way, their way, will be pretty miserable and will not make it very far in ministry, especially in Presbyterian circles. There has to be flexibility. There has to be give and take. There has to be a a, a pursuit of peace, you see. And what kind of witness, what kind of a witness is that to those outside the church when we are so inflexible? May we be a congregation marked by flexibility and moderation and reasonableness and gentleness. The last characteristic we have in our passage is that of humility. Again, our passage says that we are to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, and showing all humility to all men. This word, translated humility, can also be translated as mild or meek. And it also has a specific nuance. It combines the idea of being mild-mannered on the one hand with an inner strength on the other hand. Mild-mannered, mild temperament, and an inner strength on the other hand. The same word is used in James 1.21, where we are urged to receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save our souls. So we realize that we need that word to come to us, but we also are are resolved to become stronger as a result of that word that's implanted into us. With meekness, receive that word which will make you stronger, you see. It's also used in 1 Peter 3.15, where we read these familiar words. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. In other words, you should be, you should be strong on the inside. You should know your stuff. You should know your Bible and you're ready to defend the faith. But your attitude and your demeanor is one of mildness, tenderness. Humility. And Moses, Moses was a most excellent example of this kind of humility and meekness, wasn't he? We are told in Numbers 12, verse 3, that he was the most humble or the most or the meekest man on earth, depending on which translation you read. He had a bold inner strength. I mean, he rose up to defend one of his brethren, didn't he? and even killed an Egyptian in order to do it. He was no weakling. He he was not that timid. And yet he did not make much or think much of himself, did he? I mean, here's a man who, who defended his brother and killed this Egyptian and buried him in the sand. But he didn't think much of himself. He didn't want to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt. He didn't want the recognition or the notoriety of being a great leader. He claimed no honors for himself. How often he would have left his post if he could, but not so much out of fear, but out of a sense of his own unworthiness. God, I'm not able to lead these people. I'm not able to speak. And yet, Stephen says in Acts 7, he was mighty in word and in deed. He didn't think much of himself. But then look at his inner strength as he takes that golden calf that Aaron had made and he crushes it into powder and he mixes it with water and he forces the people to drink it. Wow. Look at him make his stand against Korah and his men who dared defy Moses' position. And Moses said, we'll see who God has called to be leader. And the earth opens up and swallows them up. He was very bold. He had an inner strength. But he was also mild-mannered. As it is so often said, meekness is not weakness. There is a a Christian book out there. It's got some good things about it. It's a book on Christian manhood, and it's called Steel and Velvet. That's the name of the book. And it is all about this idea of how a man should have this inner strength, this inner confidence and boldness, but at the same time being gentle and humble and mild-mannered. What a combination, but what a difficult balance to strike. And isn't that, especially the men, isn't that our desire, men, to have that balance? I mean, that's so hard to find that balance, 
to be, have that strength, that inner strength, that boldness and confidence, and yet to be humble, to not think much of ourselves, to realize there are others who could probably do it better. It was said of Jonathan Edwards that he was a lion in the pulpit and a lamb at home with his wife and children. But this is what God calls all of us to do, to learn this balance, to be strong in the faith and yet to realize that we are nothing without God's strength, to make a stand for truth and right and justice when we need to, but to not think that we are always the right person for the job. And I think that in the world's ideas, this idea is impossible to them. They don't understand this at all. People in the world are often either very prideful and overbearing and controlling, or they are fearful and weak and cowardly, and they allow people to trample all over them. Only in Christ is this balance to be found. Only in Him is true meekness. And really, it is in Him that we find all of these wonderful virtues and characteristics perfected. We see in Him the epitome of all of these things. When he was reviled, he reviled not again. Jesus said nothing back to that criminal. Why don't you save yourself in us? And, and Jesus said, I am the Savior. I'm going to save this person over here. He, he, he didn't say a word. He didn't revile again. In Christ is perfect peace. It is through him that we know the true peace with God and our fellow man. He's called the Prince of Peace in Isaiah 9, 6. He said of himself that he was gentle and lowly of heart. The author of Hebrews says that Jesus was holy and harmless. If that's not mild, I don't know what is. Holy and harmless and undefiled. How mild-mannered he was, and yet, who was as strong as Christ? Therefore, may we seek to be like him. As we seek to emulate these virtues, and may we be a testimony, may we be an image, a picture of who Christ is before a watching world, and may we show forth the character of Christ and be a testimony for Him before a world that is watching us. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the word that you have brought to us this morning, the calling that you have placed upon our lives, and yet we are so mindful and cognizant of how we fall far short of the character that has been set before us this morning and of the character of Christ. But we pray, Father, that where we need to, we would repent, and that, Lord, you would help transform us by the power of your Spirit, and you would help us to be more like Christ, and that we would emulate these virtues, and that we may indeed be a godly testimony, not only individually, but corporately as a church body before a watching world. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.